The debt ceiling compromise bill is headed to President Biden's desk. It was approved by the Senate in a bipartisan vote last night. It's Friday, June 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, an investigation into the health care struggles black Americans face, most of them directly tied to racism. Also this hour. They don't have anyone to feed them. They needed to have a bottle of milk every three hours. The milk could be there, but no one to actually feed them. The toll the conflict in Sudan is taking on children. And some Massachusetts school districts are experimenting with alternatives to the MCAS standardized test. We have an ever-growing population of students whose primary language is not English, and we should explore meeting them where they are in terms of their English language development. Sun to start, then clouds and rain today near 90. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Senate has approved bipartisan legislation to lift the debt ceiling just days before the nation risked defaulting on its debt. NPR's Vincent Ecovino reports. Senate votes on the bipartisan debt ceiling bill wrapped late Thursday night in Washington. On this vote, the yeas are 63, the nays are 36. The 60-vote threshold having been achieved, the bill is passed. The deal had its critics on both sides of the aisle, although none of the 11 proposed amendments to the bill saw success on the floor. Before the vote, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer celebrated the agreement and thanked his colleagues. America can breathe a sigh of relief, a sigh of relief, because in this process, we are avoiding default. Vincent Acovino, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says that Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine has been a strategic failure. Kremlin often claimed it had the second strongest military in the world, and many believed it. Today, many see Russia's military as the second strongest in Ukraine. Its equipment, technology, leadership, troops, strategy, tactics, and morale, a case study in failure. Blinken spoke in Helsinki, Finland, the newest member of the NATO alliance. He said the U.S. is working with Ukraine and other allies to build consensus around the core elements of ending the war. He said the U.S. welcomes efforts by Brazil, China, or any other nation to find a way to a just and lasting peace. A three-day security meeting opens in Singapore today, attracting senior military officers, diplomats, and analysts from around the world. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is there for the U.S. Major issues include the war in Ukraine, the continued conflict in Myanmar, and growing tensions between the U.S. and China as both countries try to expand their influence with Asia-Pacific nations. International firefighting efforts are on the way to help tackle Canada's wildfires. Officials say it's been an unprecedented start to the wildfire season in Canada. Dan Karpinchuk reports. In Nova Scotia, more than a dozen wildfires continue to burn and grow, as many as four of them out of control, especially in the southern part of the Atlantic province. Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair says the Canadian military is being mobilized to help. That is a particularly dangerous fire, and we're very concerned that it, that it actually threatens a number of communities and other critical infrastructure in southern Nova Scotia. Blair says wildfires have destroyed about 7.5 million acres of land this season across Canada. Meanwhile, hundreds of firefighters from the U.S., South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, and Mexico are heading for Canada to help crews in Alberta and Nova Scotia. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. This is NPR News from Washington.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Both, both of Massachusetts's U.S. senators voted against the debt ceiling compromise bill last night. Senator Ed Markey said he could not support the deal's included cuts to social service programs. Earlier this week, Senator Elizabeth Warren criticized the included rollback of student debt relief. A majority of Massachusetts's House delegation voted in favor of the debt ceiling legislation on Wednesday. New England's power grid operator ISO New England says the electricity system should hold up this summer as people crank their air conditioners. But as Mara Hoplamazian reports, above average temperatures could make things tight. The grid operator says the region should have enough electricity to meet that demand. But if we see something like an extended heat wave, they may need to take other actions, like importing power from other places, using power reserves, or asking people to voluntarily conserve energy. In a severe event, the grid operator could call for controlled power outages. The summer forecasts include increased amounts of solar power, like rooftop panels on homes helping to balance the grid. Those produce the most power in the early afternoon and have pushed the peak hour of demand into the early evening when the sun is lower in the sky. Energy efficiency measures like updated appliances and lighting are also set to help reduce demand. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. A statewide group of doctors wants more information about the closure of a South Shore healthcare chain. The Massachusetts Medical Society says Compass Medical must explain the sudden shutdown to its patients and staff. The Quincy-based company offered little explanation when it closed its health clinics this week. The Healy administration has also reached out to the company for more information. The city of Boston is working to put a focus on LGBTQ health this Pride Month. It's working with the group Boston Pride for the People to share information on sexual health. Gary Daffin is with that group. The theme of Pride isn't health, but the sort of underlying mission of Pride is to improve the health of LGBTQ people by making them feel that they belong in the community, and that they deserve to have quality health care just like everyone else. The program will also work to address health disparities faced by LGBTQ people of color. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, icaboston.org. The Red Sox snapped their three-game losing streak last night. They beat the Cincinnati Reds 8-2 at Fenway. Tonight, the Sox begin a four-game series with the Tampa Bay Rays. Boston is 10 games back of first-place Tampa Bay in the ALE standings. A sunny start this morning, then cloudy this afternoon. We could see some rain and thunderstorms. It'll be in the 80s. Cloudy with showers overnight. It'll be in the 50s. Cloudy with more rain tomorrow in the 50s. Sunday, partly sunny with another chance for showers near 60. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Federal prosecutors reportedly have a recording of President, former President Donald Trump talking about a classified document he had after he left office. The first account of this came from CNN. In the audio from 2021, Trump reportedly can be heard waving a paper. It's said to be a Pentagon memo about a potential attack on Iran. He's saying he'd like to share it, but the document is classified. That would contradict Trump's repeated claims that secret documents seized from his Florida home last year were all declassified. Former federal prosecutor Renata Mariotti joins me now to discuss the significance of this recording. Good morning, Renato. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning. So this recording seems to show Trump knew he had classified documents. Is this the piece of evidence the special counsel needs to bring a case? It certainly helps quite a bit. Uh, the special counsel already had a pretty strong case uh, based on what we know publicly. Uh, I think this uh, particular piece of evidence uh, not only moves his case forward, but it undercuts some of the president's uh, you know, strongest defenses or the defenses that he did have, as you mentioned a moment ago. When you say it's the strongest piece of evidence, if you could talk about why. Sure. So the, the, the biggest challenge for a prosecutor in a case like this is proving the defendant's state of mind. We don't have a telescope that can see inside uh, President Trump's mind. And the jury would have to be convinced that he knew that he was um, you know, retaining information that was supposed to be in the hands of the government. He, of course, has made statements to try to you know, disclaim that and confuse the issues. And this recording, I think, indicates very clearly that he knew he had information that was important defense information. I think it's fair to say that an attack on Iran is sort of document that should be kept secret. It shows that he had the information. He knew he wasn't supposed to share it. Um, but frankly, he was actually, you know, alluding to doing so on that tape. So it shows intent there. It does. How might Trump's team explain what is on this recording? I think it's uh, difficult, uh, and that's part of the power of that evidence. It's very difficult to explain away his words, uh, particularly without the former president taking the stand himself, which is always a risky thing to do if you are charged in a criminal case. Uh, I think that they would um, basically have to try to say that he was... Um, you know, joking and or that he was, you know, he, you know, pointing out that he didn't share the details of that information there. So he knew not to share it. But that's sort of beside the point. Now, this case is one of several. There are ongoing criminal and civil cases involving the former president. And that's pretty uncharted legal territory. What kind of trouble could Trump potentially face here? Yeah, I think this is by far the most serious and problematic case for the former president. I think it's in a league of its own. Uh, and this case uh, would result in a, a, a sentence of you know, multiple years in prison if we look at comparable sentences. For example, a case where a defense contractor brought home classified documents and retained them at, you know, at his home, received a number of years in prison. Obviously, we can't predict exactly what would happen in this particular case, given that it would be unprecedented. Now, but this is a former president here, and other former presidents have had classified documents in their homes or their office, the current president as well. What's the difference with this case? Well, the, the, in those other cases, you had a stray documents that were 
um, inadvertently uh, possessed by those presidents, and ultimately those those presidents reported it themselves. Here, the for, the former president uh, had the government trying very desperately to get that information from him, and he refused to provide it. Renato Mariotti is a formal former federal prosecutor. Excuse me. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Notre Dame Cathedral is set to reopen by December of 2024, five years after the Paris landmark caught fire. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley visited one of the many restoration projects where experts are rushing to finish on time. The wooden structure supporting Notre Dame's roof was so vast it was known as the forest. It burned like a forest too. At this 250-year-old carpentry company in France's Loire Valley, they're busy reconstructing it. But you don't hear the whirring of electric saws, it's the chopping of axes that resounds. The oak trees are transformed into long square beams by hand. Carpenter Joseph Canuel explains. We made roofs well before saws and sawmills existed. And this is how it worked. You got the wood in the nearby forest, like we're doing, and yes, we could easily cut this log into two long planks. But keeping the wood fibers the whole length of the beam gives it more resistance. This company devotes itself to France's historical monuments, so its carpenters are used to working with traditional methods. Still, Notre Dame is special, says CEO Jean-Baptiste Bonnuer. We've never done something like that before. The roof frame is dating from the medieval the 12th century and especially just the, the big volume of wood. He says the nave and choir roof needs some 1,400 oak trees. Peter Henriksen is a carpenter from Minnesota who heard about an opportunity to work on Notre Dame through the organization Carpenters Without Borders, a group reuniting those who share a love of traditional methods. He says these hand-hewn trusses are special. Taken from the round tree to a squared timber, all by hand, all with axes. All these timbers are what's called boxed hearts, so the middle of the tree is in the middle of the timber. Notre Dame's charpente, or roof frame, won't be seen by anyone, says Henriksen, so they could have used faster modern techniques. But a lot of people involved with the historic monuments historic buildings of France are really enamored with the traditional way of doing it and want to preserve that. And part of redoing the roof as it was is keeping those skills alive. He's using an axe, a little hatchet, to really make a smooth line. Edouard Cortez is another carpenter here. He removes parchment-thin layers of wood with his axe, which he says was hand-forged in the traditional way to resemble what Notre Dame's carpenters would have used. It leaves a magnificent mark on the beams, the same medieval mark found on the beams from Notre Dame. For me, it is a passion to work with such old tools. You work with your hand, your hatchet, your heart, and your head. Okay, so they're about to lift up the structure. A crane lifts one of the giant triangular frames and aligns it next to the others. A dry run before the final installation atop Notre Dame in the coming months. Then the removable metal pins connecting the trusses will be replaced by permanent wooden mortise and tenon joints. 
there won't be a single nail, screw, or piece of metal in Notre Dame's roof frame. We want to restore this cathedral as it was built in the Middle Ages. Retired General Jean-Louis Georgelin is in charge of rebuilding Notre Dame. He says it's important to be faithful to the cathedral's original artisans. That spirit is imbuing the entire restoration. You have people everywhere in France working to restore the stained windows, working to find the stones, working for the organ, and here to build the framework, the spire, and so on. To meet the five-year deadline, says Georgelin, they're combining these old methods with the most advanced computer design technology. We're restoring a medieval cathedral, he says, but Notre Dame will also be a cathedral for the 21st century. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Saint Laurent de la Plaine. The Latin music style known as regional Mexican is having a moment. This week, the chart-topping artist known as Peso Pluma visited Argentina's influential producer Visa Rap, and they almost broke the internet. Here's Alt Latino co-host Ana Maria Sayer. Okay, so two key players here. Peso Pluma is a 23-year-old super popular new artist coming out of Guadalajara in Mexico. He's part of a movement that is reimagining a classic Mexican genre with a modern twist. Basically, he's taking our grandparents' music and adding some hip-hop sensibilities to it. Now, Pisa Rap is this young producer from Argentina who invites Latin artists to come join him in his studio for a collaborative session that he publishes on his incredibly popular YouTube channel. And let me tell you, these sessions do numbers. He did one with Shakira recently, and it's already hit 557 million views. So the performance of this super popular young dude from Guadalajara on what may be the single most influential music platform in Latin America right now blew up almost instantaneously. It dropped on Wednesday night, and 19 hours later, it had 17 million views. What makes this a huge deal is that Peso Pluma is the first regional artist to join Bizarrap for one of his sessions, and the track's instant reach all across Latin America shows just how influential the genre has become. In this case, Bizarrap is sitting in his producer's studio chair down there in the Southern Cone, watching his own platform be elevated by a genre that was once only popular along the U.S.-Mexico border. It's a fascinating musical development that also happens to be fun to dance to. That's Ana Maria Serre with NPR's Alt Latino. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, how Miami public schools are faring as a historic number of students from other countries move into the district. It's 719. I'm Tiziana Deering. 
From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from morning edition to all things considered, from stories online at WBUR.org to conversations on stage at City Space. Everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal of 700 monthly contributors to keep our journalism strong. No reason to wait. Give at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast, OceanStateJobLot.com. And BMW, the BMW i4, has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. It's Friday. That means our latest Boston news quiz is out. Here's the first question. There were smoky skies over Massachusetts this week due primarily to what? The answer? Wildfires in Canada. Test yourself by visiting WBUR.org slash quiz. A high near 88 today. Clouds move in throughout the morning and early afternoon. We may see showers and possibly a thunderstorm in the late afternoon and evening. The winds will also pick up. Tonight it falls to a low around 52. Tomorrow mostly cloudy and a high only around 58 with a good chance of showers. Sunday partly sunny, a high near 60 and another chance of showers. It's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. From EBSCO, committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant online research databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. More at ebsco.com. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. A large group of Americans is more likely than others to have complications and even die during childbirth, to struggle with asthma during childhood and high blood pressure during adulthood, and to develop Alzheimer's as elders. What do these Americans have in common? They're black. Researchers have known about these disparities for some time, but reporters with the Associated Press wanted to know how wide these disparities are and why they persist. So they spent a year examining all this and just delivered their work in a new five-part series called From Birth to Death. I recently spoke with one of the series' main reporters, Kat Stafford. You start the series talking about something that's gotten a fair amount of attention in recent years, which is the very high rate of death that black women and babies experience in childbirth in the U.S. compared to white people in the U.S. and, frankly, compared to other parts of the world. But you go further. You say this is a pattern of health disparities that follows from birth to death. What made you take that expansive look? 
So I did a lot of reporting for the AP amid the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic and really taking a deep look at the disparate toll that we saw on Black communities across the nation. And I felt like there's more to this. How do we get to this point where we saw these disparate outcomes? So that was kind of the genesis for this project where we really wanted to set out and show that the things that you encounter as a Black American, even before you take your first breath of life, can really set the stage for you to encounter and deal with these health inequities that impact Black Americans from birth literally to their final moments of life. And just even looking at maternal mortality, you uh, point out that the differences exist regardless of income or education level for Black women. Why do you think it's so important to point that out? That is a crucial element of this project because this is true for the maternal mortality rates that we are seeing, but it's also true for many of these ailments that we reported on that. Regardless of how much money you make, if you are a Black person in America, you have a higher chance of dying of these illnesses. And a lot of these deaths are preventable. If you are a Black woman, a Black person, you enter the medical system, you are likely to encounter a medical provider who might not listen to you. Your concerns aren't heard. That was Angelica Lyons' experience in Alabama. When Stafford interviewed her for the series, Lyons told her that when she became pregnant in 2019, she started experiencing severe pain. But she says hospital staff did not take her seriously. I got in the bed, I felt this strong pain from like my uh, vaginal area all the way up to my chest. I screamed. That was literally the beginning of literally them constantly leaving me in pain. Black Americans report similar experiences when they become caregivers to aging parents with Alzheimer's. African Americans are 40% more likely to develop Alzheimer's than white Americans, according to federal data. But all along the way, family members say they struggle to get adequate information, treatment, and support from medical providers. What we found was that a lot of black caregivers, they encounter the same things. You have providers who aren't listening to them. Even getting a simple diagnosis is hard. So not only are black people more likely to have Alzheimer's, they are also less likely to be receiving equitable care that they need to take care of this disease. How do we know that this is a systemic issue? Because as you certainly know, that we live in a time when there are a lot of people who are just really reluctant to and even hostile about the idea that there is something called like systemic racism. So what convinces you that this is something about the systems that people live in and under? The fact that there are decades worth of research, uh, statistics, all of these things that have laid out clearly the role that structural racism plays in inequities. We also made an intentional effort to highlight the voices of doctors, historians, folks that have really been rooted in this work to really lay clear why these disparities exist today. And one thing that they all were very keen on pointing out was this cannot be explained by genetics alone. There is nothing genetically wrong with Black people, but what we are seeing are the effects of socioeconomic conditions, social determinants, and all of these things that manifest because of this legacy of structural racism that legacy plays out in the city of Hartford, Connecticut. More than 21% of kids in East Hartford have asthma. That's compared with 13% statewide. Black children are disproportionately affected. Stafford spoke to a mom in Hartford named Catherine. Her five-year-old son has asthma, and he suffered a frightening attack at a birthday party. 
So I literally had to pick him up and he just kept saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, he's crying. And I'm just like, okay, just breathe, just breathe. <sighs> Sorry. It was scary. Stafford also interviewed the former director of Hartford's health department, Mark Mitchell. He sought to raise awareness of how industrial development clustered near black neighborhoods contributes to high asthma rates. It's clear that there is systemic racism. I don't think that there is a racist on the steps of the Capitol saying, let's have all toxicants go to uh, communities of color. But the rules and the processes that are in place tend to make that happen. Would access to care fix this problem? I mean, if, for example, there were more health facilities in Black neighborhoods, would that address the problem? Or is it more than that also? Even if those places do exist, what a lot of advocates and experts have said is that does not address the structural racism that might manifest in these institutions. What do you think has been lost by the fact that the health of African-Americans compares so poorly to that of other Americans, particularly white Americans? How would you kind of describe what the country has lost when you think about all the people that we have lost across generations, we have lost people who we don't know what they could have become. And for me, I kept that throughout the course of the reporting, and I hope that is something that sticks with everyone. It's not just numbers we're losing here. These are real people. That's Kat Stafford. She reported a series on the health disparities that African Americans experience from birth to death. Kat Stafford, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. The Associated Press series From Birth to Death is available online at apnews.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Amid complaints that the MCAS test doesn't reflect Massachusetts's changing student demographics, some districts are trying other options. It's 7.29. The next WBUR Virtual Community Advisory Board meeting is Wednesday, June 7th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details are at wbur.org slash openmeetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at mparchitectsboston.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Legislation to raise the debt ceiling and prevent a default has cleared Congress. The Senate approved the bill last night by a vote of 63 to 36, three votes more than were needed for passage. Senate approval came a day after lawmakers in the House passed the legislation. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says Democrats deserve the credit. We've saved the country from the scourge of default, even though there were some on the other side who wanted default, wanted to lead us to default. Dozens of Democrats and Republicans in the House voted against the bill, arguing the legislation either cut too much federal spending or not enough. The bill now heads to President Biden for his signature. 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had warned a default could occur next week without Congress taking action. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will not be meeting with China's defense chief when the two attend a weekend security summit in Singapore. Here's NPR's Emily Fang. When the U.S. proposed at this defense meeting here at the Shangri-La to meet between the two defense chiefs, Beijing said no. And the primary reason for that rejection was in 2018, the U.S. sanctioned the current China defense chief for buying Russian weapons. And so China has been upset about this. They would like to see those sanctions lifted first before they have any meetings with U.S. officials. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBOR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Leaders with the T say it could be a while before riders see improvements on the transit system. Thomas Glynn is the chair of the MBTA Board of Directors. He predicts it could be a year before people really notice changes. Until then, he says there will be small incremental improvements. You know, we have a meeting or we you know talk to people in the stakeholder community and we can say time between trips is, you know, eight minutes when I get it to six minutes. But I don't know how meaningful that is to the passengers, you know, who are kind of standing on the platform kind of waiting. Glenn adds some problems are tied to speed restrictions on all four subway lines. Right now, those are in effect on 20 percent of the T. An audit has found that Massachusetts used $2.5 billion in federal funds to pay unemployment benefits during the pandemic. But those benefits should have been paid using state money. The state has not said how the mistake was made. Governor Healy's office tells the Boston Globe it wants to find a solution with the smallest impact possible. The U.S. Labor Department says it's working with the state to solve the issue. The state is expanding its free swim lesson programs this summer. More than a dozen organizations around Massachusetts will provide the free beginner classes. They'll be open to all ages. The state already provides some free youth swim lessons each summer. Sign-ups for the classes will open in the coming weeks. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Red Sox beat the Cincinnati Reds 8-2 last night at Fenway. The Sox will host the first-place Tampa Bay Rays tonight. Clouds roll in throughout this morning and this afternoon. There's a chance of showers and a thunderstorm. High temperatures will be in the upper 80s. Tonight, cloudy with more showers possible and lows in the low 50s. Saturday, temperatures won't rise past 60, and there's another good chance of rain. About the same on Sunday, around 60. 60 and a chance of showers. It's 71 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. More than 20,000 new immigrant students have enrolled in Miami-Dade County Public Schools this year. Officials say it's a historic increase that's helping the school district grow for the first time in two decades. Reporter Kate Payne from member station WLRN tells us how that's affecting one school. Good morning, Ms. Bruscantini. Good morning. The week I visited Amelia Bruscantini's class at Milam K-8 Center, she had just gotten a brand new student. Yes. We said. just have one new one this week. This week. Hi, Maylene. Good. Good. Just came in Tuesday. Yeah. And I have another one that came in on last week. She went to the doctor to get her shots today. Most of the district's new immigrant students are from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. A recent Biden administration program allows people from those countries to stay legally and work for two years. This school in the city of Hialeah had been under-enrolled for a decade. Now it's nearly at capacity. And Bruce Contini says these students need help. Some of these kids didn't know their ABCs in second grade. Even in their home language or their primary Some language. of them in their language, but remember COVID, some of them in their own countries couldn't go to school. So we have to kind of go down to their level so that we can add skills. The principal of this school, Anna Hernandez, says she's never seen a spike like this one. It's just honestly like sometimes I come in <laughs> into the lobby and there'll be like the families are all over the place, like just, you know, waiting. One of the first things they do is talk to a school counselor like Lorena Lascano. And she says they talk about more than just academics. We like to meet with the families and we like to get a little bit of a family history and kind of ask where are they living, what resources do they have, what resources do they need and how can we help them. Many of the students also get weekly counseling. Principal Hernandez says the dangerous track her students took to get here is still traumatizing some of them. I was talking to a teacher the other day and she was telling me how one of her students was sitting like to take a test. Like he just didn't seem like he was engaged at all. And then he started telling her how when he was coming, he had to go through a river and it was like almost like up to his face. She was like, you know what, like I, I can understand why he's not engaged in taking a test right now. Many of the new students simply need more support at a time when the district was already struggling to hire enough teachers. It certainly puts a stress on our finances. Ron Steiger is the chief financial officer for Miami-Dade schools. There are costs in the short term, but he says these students are helping the district chart a new future. We lost enrollment in our schools every single year for 20 straight years. But this year we didn't. It is absolutely one of the factors that is helping us see growth in our traditional schools again. That's if the district can help these students and their families stay and build a new life here. For NPR News, I'm Kate Payne in Hialeah. Hundreds of people have been killed and millions more displaced in the nearly seven weeks since two rival generals began fighting for power in Sudan. And the invisible victims of this war are Sudan's orphans. At least 50 children, half of them infants, have died at the Maigoma Orphanage in central Khartoum, an area of some of the most intense fighting. I spoke with Reuters investigative journalist Maggie Michelle, who documented what's happening to Sudan's most vulnerable. What is killing these kids at the orphanage? Number one, lack of carers. 
so they don't have anyone to feed them. They needed to have a bottle of milk every three hours. They're just babies. Um, the milk could be there, but no one to actually carry them and feed them. The number two um, is heat. The last wave was really, really hard. We have 13 in one day, 10 in a second day, 14 in another day, and it's because of heat. Who died? Uh, the babies. These waves, uh, like the latest ones and the most recent ones, are because there is no power for the air conditions and the fans. And they're staying in rooms that are extremely hot. Now, how many caretakers typically are at this orphanage outside of conflict zone time and how many kids? Before war, um, they used to have around 80 mothers. Uh, they call them mothers or sometimes nannies. 80 of them for around 400. So this number dropped to two or three in the first weeks of the fighting. And then because of the appeals online, they managed to bring in volunteers and the number reached around 40. And then it keeps going up and down. And this is very, very problematic. It's not a stable situation. So there are moments where two or three people are caring for 400 children, including babies. Yes, exactly. So there's a lack of caretakers, but also many of Sudan's hospitals are in these conflict areas, unable to function because of staff shortages, looting, lack of supplies. How is the orphanage getting medical help for these kids? Yeah, exactly. This is the problem also that large number and the strong majority of hospitals in Khartoum are out of service. And even the babies of my goma who are being treated in the hospitals will send back to my goma without being treated, and many of them died. Some were in incubators, and my goma doesn't really have enough for them. So medical supplies are also problematic, but not a challenge as getting the people to my goma and securing the steady power supply, because this is extremely important. Now, you spoke to the general manager at Sudan's largest maternity hospital as well, who described having to leave babies behind. Can you tell me about that? This is uh, uh, Dr. Ahmed. He runs the largest uh, diet hospital. And he told me um, the militiamen occupied the building. Uh, also, power supplies were cut. Uh, they had to leave and evacuate. And because they don't have ambulances that are really equipped, they had to leave uh, patients behind, including nine babies in incubators and patients in ICUs. So this is really a terrible situation in Khartoum. I'm thinking of the symbolism here. Like, what is more vulnerable than an orphaned baby who's on a ventilator, who's in an incubator, who can't get out of a conflict zone. When you were interviewing these caretakers, doctors, what are they asking for in this moment? What do they need in this moment so that they can get the most vulnerable parts of the country to safety? They need international humanitarian organizations to support, fund, negotiate, passage, find alternative outside of this uh, war zone. This is their top demand. And have been trying, but it seems it's very, very hard to negotiate even between the fighters and the two factions fighting in Khartoum. So this is their biggest demand is to just get out of here. That was Reuters investigative journalist Maggie Michelle, who's documented what is happening to Sudan's orphaned babies in the capital. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News.
It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.10, a Labor Department report out this morning is expected to show employers continued to hire in May, but not as much as the same time last year. Upper 80s today with a chance of showers and a thunderstorm this afternoon. Low 50s tonight with more rain possible. Tomorrow only in the 50s and a good chance of more showers. Around 60 on Sunday with rain likely. It's 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Walden Local Meat partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com An Andover-based RNA medicines company plans to lay off most of its workforce. Encorus is laying off 55 employees. Those cuts include the company's CEO and chief medical officer. The company says it hasn't received enough funding to continue its work. Wegmans plans to close its grocery store at the Natick Mall later this summer. It opened five years ago inside the mall, but company officials say the untraditional location doesn't attract enough customers. Wegmans says all employees at that store will be offered jobs at other locations. It's 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts standardized test known as the MCAS has become a familiar yardstick to measure the academic growth of both students and schools. But educators say the test has been slow to evolve, especially to reflect a growing number of English learners. And as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, it's led some districts this year to find other ways to assess what students know. Craig Consigli started teaching in Milford at the dawn of the MCAS era, 25 years ago. And when testing season rolls around in the spring, he's used to a common response. When you mentioned MCAS to teachers, I think if you ask kids, it's the same thing. They give you the same, oh man, it's something we have to do. That sense of exasperation has been building in Milford in recent years. The town is home to a growing community of recent immigrants, many from Ecuador and Brazil, who, school leaders say, struggle with standardized tests. The ranks of English learners in its schools have swelled, from 13% in 2017 to nearly a third this year. Meanwhile, the district's average MCAS scores have dipped. Consigli, now an assistant superintendent, says that's not surprising. Imagine if the situation were reversed. I'm going to Brazil. I'm trying to learn the language. I have to take this assessment in Portuguese at the end of the year. I just don't think that's going to go well. And we do that to our students all the time. The district has had a glimpse of something that might work better. They're experimenting with performance assessments. If MCAS is solitary, silent, and rote, performance assessments are almost the opposite. Collaborative, even a little noisy. Students can turn to teachers or classmates if they're stuck, and they can think out loud in English or with peers in their home language. This sixth grader is thinking through a social studies assessment on the Silk Road. 
two, three. We have four, four spices, three teas. How much coins do we have? These assessments can look like games or group projects, but the goal is to give more students, including English learners, a way to show what they know in various subjects. This spring at the Stacy Middle School in Milford, the approach has a lot of proponents. Instructional coach Alyssa Holland did her own performance assessments in science class, asking junior chemists to identify four different clear liquids. One student's reaction stands out in her mind. She said, um, I feel like a real scientist, and that, that was such a hook for me. And this was a student that really did not engage in homework, but this she was just all in on and kind of really shown as, as a leader in her group. Holland admits one downside with performance assessments, that it takes work to make them generate the simple numerical scores of standardized tests, and there's room for subjectivity. Milford is one of eight communities in a state-funded consortium that are testing out performance assessments, trying to pave the way for a world in which the MCAS doesn't have to loom so large. Right now, the MCAS is used as a high school graduation requirement, and districts that perform poorly are at risk of state takeover. Dan French, head of performance assessment for that consortium, says that setting fast-growing groups, especially English learners and low-income students, up for failure. In public education in Massachusetts, we should take a very close look at the changing demographics in our public school enrollment over the past 20 years and create assessments that really meet the assets, strengths, and needs of those students. Even state education officials see room for the MCAS to evolve to fit a changing state, like Rob Curtin, head of assessment for the state's Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. He spoke at a May panel hosted by the group Education Reform Now. We need to explore making our assessment available in multiple languages beyond what we do now. We have an ever-growing population of students whose primary language is not English, and we should explore meeting them where they are in terms of their English language development. Curtin argued that while the MCAS needs to be revamped, it shouldn't be abandoned. MCAS critics know the test isn't going away, but they are trying to chip away at its dominant role in public school systems. A new bill known as the Thrive Act proposes to remove the graduation requirement and end the practice of state takeovers. That bill is not likely to pass this year, but it's stirred up debate among educators. The B.T. Brown, head of the Codman Academy Charter School in Boston, said he supports the concept of what's happening in Milford, but a post-MCAS world still feels a long way off, as he told a recent panel. It's, it's, it sounds like a simple fix, but in fact, to actually have these robust, intense, inter-rater reliable performance assessments is a crazy heavy lift, right? And so there's just a lot of work to be done. For now, the eight districts in the consortium are doing that work, designing assessments, refining them, and sharing them across the state. And at the same time, they're giving their kids and teachers a short break from the anxiety of the big standardized test. You had yourselves 15 whole seconds. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. You're with WBUR coming up at 820 on Morning Edition. It's StoryCorps. Today, a couple who met at a support group for people living with mental illness celebrates their anniversary. It's 750.
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red Fire Farm. Organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Cambridge, Somerville, Newton, and other towns. Redfirefarm.com. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The Senate approved the plan to raise the nation's debt ceiling and now heads to President Biden. Arizona plans to limit construction in some areas of Phoenix due to overuse of the city's water supply. And in Massachusetts, MBTA officials say it may be a year until riders see large improvements on the T. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Upper 80s today with rain and a thunderstorm. It right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. YouTube social media challenges have been going viral for years. Now, they often involve people recording themselves, doing something dramatic or funny. Sometimes, though, the dares can be fatal. As shareholders of YouTube's parent company, Alphabet, meet today, a Wisconsin mom plans to confront them with the story of her teenage son's death. We had heard of challenges, but I never knew there were any that were deadly. Here's NPR's Derek Kerr. Annie McGrath never worried about her 13-year-old Griffin. He had good grades and lots of friends. He loved science experiments and played the drums. He was a speed Rubik's Cuber, so he was running downstairs, playing the piano a little bit, then running down and playing the drums, all the while swishing his Rubik's Cube. That night, he went upstairs to talk to his friends, and everything seemed normal. He went up to his room, and um, he never came back down. So, and um, I didn't know anything was wrong until it was too late. Griffin had tried the blackout challenge that he and his friends had discovered on YouTube. It involved holding his breath until he passed out while he was on the phone with his friends. But something went wrong and he never woke up. The next day, his friends came forward and said what happened. I don't remember what happened after that, honestly. It's all kind of a blur. Griffin is one of nearly 1,400 children who've died from the blackout challenge, according to their parents who've now formed a group. YouTube says its policy is to remove videos with the blackout challenge, but McGrath says she sees and reports these videos daily, and often they're not taken down. There's no transparency whatsoever. There's no accountability. Some parents say their kids have also died from other things they've seen on social media, like suicide from bullying, anorexia, and drug use. So McGrath and other parents are taking an all-tactics approach. They're in a class-action lawsuit against YouTube and TikTok. They're lobbying Congress, and the pressure is working. Last week, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a first-ever guidance saying social media poses a profound risk for children. And in the past six months, there's been a slew of bills introduced at the federal and state level. Zeev Sanderson from NYU Center for Social Media and Politics says there's something visceral about hearing the stories of children who've been harmed. 
there's been a lot of appetite for policies that focus on social media. McGrath is addressing YouTube's investors at its annual shareholder meeting today. She's supporting a specific resolution on more oversight at the company, including how YouTube manages its videos. Zach Rogoff studies shareholder resolutions for a nonprofit called Ranking Digital Rights. He says this is one of the first times he's seen a family member of a victim speak at a shareholder meeting. The thing that's interesting about this is that shareholders have brought somebody who is personally affected by the problems the company is causing. The company is urging shareholders to vote against the resolution. But McGrath says that's callous. She hopes to prevent another kid from ever seeing a YouTube challenge video again. So they can be the smartest kid in the world and winning a science bowl and perfect in math and he could solve a Rubik's Cube in eight seconds. You think they're mature, but they're still kids and they're going to think, oh, well, they see it a bunch on YouTube and it's not scary. It's normalized. McGrath says that until she sees a change with YouTube, she and all of the other parents she's working with are going to keep all hands on deck. Dara Kerr, NPR News. For the first time, a native Hawaiian woman is being featured on a U.S. coin. Edith Kanaka'ole played a key role in keeping many Hawaiian traditions alive. Here's Heidi Chang reporting from Honolulu. Throughout the Hawaiian cultural renaissance of the 1970s, Edith Kanaka'ole was a dynamic force in reviving the Hawaiian language, hula, and chant. Fondly known as Auntie Edith, she was born on Hawaii Island and died in 1979 at the age of 65. We celebrate my grandmother every day through what we do. Hui Hui Kanaheli Mossman heads the Edith Kanakaoli Foundation. Just her being this native Hawaiian woman who refused to let go her language, held on to the fact that hula and oli is necessary as a part of the lifestyle of Hawaii. But those practices were almost lost after a group of American and European businessmen, backed by the United States, overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy in the 1890s. The Hawaiian language was soon banned in government and public schools. And over the decades, other traditions were suppressed. Some of our people felt sorrow, maybe even shame, for that loss. John Osorio is a native Hawaiian musician and historian. I knew I grew up thinking that Hawaiian was completely gone from all households because it was gone in ours, but it wasn't. When he was 20, he studied Hawaiian with Auntie Edith for one semester. Osorio is now the Dean of the School of Hawaiian Knowledge at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Had it not been for f folks like Edith Kanaka'ole, there would have been no expertise to turn to. They are these gentle, loving, because she was that way, earnest reminders that our ancestors were amazing. She was criticized for teaching deep culture to a group that wasn't all Hawaiians. Puakea Nogelmeyer, who's white, studied hula and chant with Auntie Edith. In her mind, it was very important that if you want knowledge to live on, you teach those who are interested. And she said, I know you all care, and you will be willing to carry it forward. Nogelmeyer taught Hawaiian language for more than 30 years at the University of Hawaii. He now runs a nonprofit that trains people to interpret historical Hawaiian documents. These days, Nogelmeyer still recites a chant Auntie Edith taught him to grant wisdom. 
A few words from that chant are inscribed on the quarter. Photographer Franco Samaragi made the image of Auntie Edith, which an artist used for the coin. Well, we went into the forest. Well, she was happy because she hadn't been out in a beautiful place like that in two or three years because she was so busy teaching. Salmoragi's favorite photograph shows Auntie Edith chanting in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Because it's not just the photograph, it's her. And it's all the energy that came from her. The coin depicts Auntie Edith's hair flowing into nature. She cared for the planet. You can hear it in her music and in a PBS Hawaii television special. She sings her beloved song about the plants of the sea. Ka Ulevehi, Oke Kai. For NPR News, I'm Heidi Chang in Honolulu. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. With just days to spare, a bipartisan bill to avert a historic federal default has passed the Senate and now heads to the president. It's Friday, June 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the debt ceiling deal's potential impact on some food stamp recipients. There's gonna be people on welfare today that will no longer be on welfare, that they will find a job because of the work requirement. Also this hour. I wouldn't go to my mechanic and tell him how to fix my car. So why are we doing this to our teacher? It just doesn't make any sense to me. A new poll sheds light on how many Americans support restricting what teachers can say about race, sexuality, and gender. And a Massachusetts writer celebrates the diversity in Disney's new Little Mermaid and calls for more. In sports, Red Sox win upper 80s today with rain this afternoon. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Economists believe employers in the U.S. slowed their pace of hiring last month. NPR's Scott Horsley has a preview of what the Labor Department is expected to report this morning for the month of May. U.S. employers added more than a quarter million jobs in April, according to the initial tally by the Labor Department. Forecasters think today's report will show somewhat fewer jobs were added in May. There's plenty of uncertainty, though. Yesterday, the payroll processing company ADP reported strong job growth last month. And a survey of factory managers found many of them are still hiring, even as factory orders continue to shrink. New claims for unemployment benefits suggest layoffs are still rare, although they have been inching up over time. And fewer workers are quitting their jobs, perhaps because they think other better jobs are no longer as plentiful as they had been. 
Scott Horstay, NPR News, Washington. Legislation to raise the debt ceiling and prevent a default is heading to President Biden for his signature. The Senate approved the bill last night, a day after it cleared the House. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. The final passage of the bill came after a handful of senators from both parties voiced their objections to certain provisions of the legislation. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer praised lawmakers for acting quickly to pass the measure, adding that America can breathe a sigh of relief in avoiding default. The legislation would lift the borrowing limit for the next two years and cut some government spending. NPR's Windsor Johnston. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had warned a default was possible next week if Congress didn't take action to raise the debt limit. The state of Texas asked a federal judge in Houston yesterday to end a controversial immigration policy. Rebecca Noel of Houston Public Media reports. At issue is what's known as a final rule, handed down by the Biden administration that bolstered protections for tens of thousands of DACA recipients. Those are people who were brought to the U.S. illegally as children. The state of Texas says the final rule is nearly identical to DACA, which a federal judge has already declared unlawful. Attorneys for the state say the final rule has caused financial harm to the state. But Nina Perales of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund says it hasn't. Texas and the other states lack standing to sue, and we should not be in court at all having to defend DACA. There are approximately 600,000 DACA recipients nationwide. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Noel in Houston. Texas and nine other states are suing the federal government over plans to raise the premiums on national flood insurance. The Federal Emergency Management Agency says it's changing the system to make it more fair. In a lawsuit filed yesterday, the plaintiffs say the changes will mean higher costs that could force people from their homes. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Both of the U.S. senators from Massachusetts voted against the debt ceiling bill last night. Senator Elizabeth Warren told CNN before the vote yesterday that she believed the compromise negotiations were flawed. We should never have been put in this position to begin with. This is about paying the ransom to a bunch of hostage takers. And that is not how we should run this government. Senator Ed Markey said the legislation makes unnecessary cuts to social services. He wants lawmakers to abolish the debt ceiling altogether. The Healy administration is raising concerns about the abrupt closure of the South Shore physician group Compass Medical. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports the closure left thousands of patients scrambling to find care. The Massachusetts Executive Office of Health and Human Services says it understands the stress this is causing patients and staff. Health and Human Services says it's consulting with the state attorney general's office. David Williams is president of Boston-based Health Business Group. He calls the closure of Compass Medical worrisome. They were up and operating as normal, and then they suddenly shut and didn't give a lot of reasons for it. And that's a problem if you're a patient. It's even more of a problem if you were an employee. Last year, a judge found Compass had committed fraud against another healthcare system and ordered Compass to pay $16 million in damages. Williams says that hurt the company financially and damaged its reputation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. 
Governor Healy is calling on textbook publishers to resist what she calls political censorship. Healy joined nine other Democratic governors in an open letter to publishers last month. The group says educational materials must not remove or water down topics due to political pressures. The letter comes in response to moves by some state leaders nationwide who are pushing to limit or restrict information in textbooks. The city of Lowell will spend a million dollars on credit monitoring for workers affected by a cyber attack. That attack has plagued the city's computer systems for more than a month, and things still aren't back to normal. The Lowell Sun reports hackers took personal and professional data of city workers and teachers. They'll be eligible for credit monitoring for up to two years. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Charles River Apparel's Warehouse event today and tomorrow in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. The Red Sox ended their three-game losing streak last night. They topped the Cincinnati Reds 8-2 at Fenway. Tonight, the Red Sox host the Tampa Bay Rays for the first of four games this weekend. Boston is in last place in the American League East, 10 games back of first place Tampa Bay. A sunny start this morning, then cloudy this afternoon. We could see some rain and thunderstorms. It'll be in the 80s. Cloudy with showers overnight. It'll be in the 50s. Cloudy with more rain tomorrow in the 50s. Sunday, partly sunny with another chance for showers near 60. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. It now goes to President Biden to sign into law before the government runs out of money to pay its bills on Monday. One of the biggest sticking points among negotiators crafting the deal were new work requirements for social safety net programs. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo has been following the process. Jimena, so is is everything all good now with America and the debt? Well, it appears like crisis has been averted for now. Here is Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer after the Senate's vote last night. I'm happy to stand here passing this critical legislation to support our families, preserve vital programs, and most importantly, avoid catastrophic default. Schumer was threatening to keep members here over the weekend to get this through, so this is an accomplishment, and President Biden said he will sign the bill as soon as possible. Okay, Jimena, you've been covering food assistance. Uh, I want to play a clip from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who tried to explain why he thinks this bill could actually help people on welfare programs. There's going to be people who are on welfare today that will no longer be on welfare, that they will find a job because of the work requirement. So, Jimena, how is this supposed to help? Well, House Republicans were threatening to increase work requirements specifically for those ages 50 to 55 for food stamps and Medicaid. Food stamps currently limit so-called able-bodied adults without dependents ages 18 to 50 to three months of food stamp benefits during any 36-month period when they cannot show that they're employed or working in a training program for at least 20 hours a week. But Democrats and progressives really pushed back against that. In the end, there were no changes to Medicaid and Republicans Republicans did win an age increase, though, only to 54. 
And Democrats got something a little extra. Veterans and homeless folks of any age and youth who aged out of foster care would be exempt from these work requirements. Then the Congressional Budget Office came out with its prediction, which found that there could be a slight increase in participation. Okay, so how might this proposed spending cut end up increasing participation? Well, the Congressional Budget Office is predicting that there could be about 78,000 people added to food stamps. But keep in mind that is only a 0.2% increase, so statistically maybe not as significant. And it predicted an increase in spending levels at the same time. Republicans were really quickly to disagree with the CBO's math, and they instead touted it as a win. That's because they see addressing any sort of work requirements as an accomplishment. Here's Republican Representative Elise Stefanik. The Biden administration didn't want work requirements at all. They wanted a clean debt ceiling with, with no give. And we have accomplished this in this legislation. Even though there are these new exemptions, progressive and hunger groups have criticized the bill because of that age increase. Here's Eliza Lieberman, vice president of communications for a group called Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger, who said these changes shouldn't have happened in the debt limit talks. It feels like it's illustrating the arbitrary nature of the time limits because it's playing numbers game. And the outcome of this particular policy is really murky. The White House insists that the amount of people on work requirements before and after will not change, even as Republicans are arguing that they are bringing more people into the workforce. And a lot of this will come down to how states are going to be able to handle these changes. It's also important to note that this policy and the new exemptions will expire in 2030. So this is all temporary. NPR's Jimena Bustillo, thanks for checking in. Thank you. With warmer weather here, we're wondering how hot this summer job market will be. We'll get some clues later this morning when the Labor Department reports on job growth for the month of May. Many employers say they're still hiring, but they're not as desperate for workers as they were at this time last year. NPR's Scott Horsley is with us now to discuss. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Lily. Good morning. So, Scott, employers have added nearly 4 million jobs over the last year. How long can they keep this up? Yeah, that's the question a lot of business people are asking, uh, especially in industries like manufacturing, where we've seen a slowdown in demand. Uh, many parts of the economy are still growing, though perhaps not as fast as they were. You know, a lot of amusement parks are looking forward to a busy summer season. I spoke this week with Leah Cook-Bloomhart, whose family owns the Holiday World and Splash and Safari Parks in Santa Claus, Indiana. Uh, they had a good May, capped off by a three-day weekend last weekend. But unlike last year, when they really struggled to find enough workers to staff the parks, Cook-Bloomhart says this year they're in pretty good shape. We're still hiring and we still have turnover throughout the summer, but getting employees this year to run the rides and the slides and lifeguard has been a lot easier this year. We're firing on all cylinders and it's shaping up to be a really great season. Cook Bloomhart says she and her family members still pitch in making pizza or dusting funnel cakes when the frontline workers are shorthanded, but she thinks they're going to have to do that less often this year than they did last. What's made hiring easier this year? Part of the answer has been more international workers using uh, temporary visas. Uh, that's a workforce that was pretty much absent during the depths of the pandemic, but has now bounced back. Uh, that's part of a larger story in the job market, the rebound of immigration. Uh, Foreign-born workers accounted for more than half the growth in the U.S. labor force last year. And without that extra help, there's no way the economy could have enjoyed the kind of strong job growth that it has. Uh, Cook Bloomhart said they've also attracted uh, more local job applicants with the tried-and-true approach of raising wages. This year, 
we took our 16, 17-year-old pay up to match the 18-year-old pay. So before they're making $10 an hour, and now they're making $13 an hour. That makes it a very competitive rate for a 16 or 17-year-old in this area. Something else Holly World did is they just added a new dormitory that can house 136 employees for the summer. Uh, that's a big plus in a community that doesn't offer a lot of short-term rental housing, and it makes it easier to recruit seasonal workers from outside the immediate area. Okay, so you mentioned that the amusement park is paying higher wages. What's happening with wages overall? They're still going up, but not as fast as they had been, uh, and that's certainly something we're going to watch for in today's report. Uh, when employers were desperate to add workers, they were bidding up wages quite rapidly. Now they're a little more cautious, not so sure of what the outlook is going to be. And workers have taken note of that. Julia Pollack, who's chief economist at the job search website ZipRecruiter, says you're not seeing as many people quitting jobs right now in search of better paying positions elsewhere. Workers are clearly aware that the ground has shifted under their feet and that they no longer have quite the bargaining power that they did when workers were so scarce. To be sure, this is still a tight job market. Uh, The unemployment rate in April matched the lowest it's been in uh, more than half a century. But job growth has slowed down, and it's likely to slow more, uh, and both workers and businesses want to be ready for that. What does this tell us about the broader economy? Well, it might help in the fight against inflation. Uh, Rising wages, of course, are good for workers, but the Federal Reserve is worried that if wages go up too fast, it could put upward pressure on prices. So the Fed will be watching today's report closely as well. NPR Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Next year, when NASA sends a spacecraft toward Jupiter, it'll have a special message engraved on it. The poem, In Praise of Mystery, a poem for Europa, was written by U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Limon. When NASA contacted me and asked me if I would write an original poem, I immediately got really excited and said yes. And then we hung up the call and I thought, how am I going to do that? Limon says it was a challenge to write something that will travel so far. The spacecraft will fly 1.8 billion miles to explore Jupiter's icy moon Europa. The way I finally entered the poem was to point back to the Earth. There are mysteries below our sky. The whale song, the songbird singing its call in the bow of a wind-shaken tree. It's an ocean world. Europa is an ocean world, like the Earth, right? Our ocean is teeming with life. The question is, are other ocean worlds also teeming with life? Lori Leshin heads NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. That's where the Europa Clipper is being built. The spacecraft will fly by Europa about 50 times and transmit information back to Earth. Europa's oceans are believed to be encased under an ice crust, something that has fascinated Limon. It's not only that we need water to survive, but also that it runs through our veins. That to me was an immediate link that made the poem turn into a real human thing. We too are made of water, of vast and beckoning seas. We We have to give in to wonder. We have to have wonder in order to survive. Of small, invisible worlds, of a need to call out through the dark. The words of this poem will be engraved on the spacecraft in Limon's own handwriting. If you can imagine writing a birthday card 
and getting it wrong and having to throw it away um, because you didn't like the way your handwriting worked. Um, imagine trying to write in your own handwriting something that is going to be engraved on the side of a spacecraft and not throw every, every version away. So um, yeah, it was, I'm still overwhelmed by that. It took her 19 tries to get it just right. It'll take about six years for the Europa Clipper mission to get into orbit around Jupiter. And NASA's inviting members of the public to add their names to the poem. Sign up before the end of the year and your name will be stenciled onto a microchip along with the poem that will ride on the spacecraft. The winner of the country's biggest spelling bee is Deb Shaw, an eighth grader from Largo, Florida. You know, Layla, the uh, Scripps National Spelling Bee kind of reminds me of how spelling in public makes me all anxious. Does it? Yeah. Okay. Hey, here's a chance to prove yourself. Try <laughs> spelling the word that earned Dev the win. It's samophile. Definition, please. Samophile, an organism that prefers or thrives in sandy soil or areas. Samophile. S A. No, no. no. Listen to Dev do it. P-S-A-M-M-O-P-H-I-L-E, Samophile. That is correct. Oh <laughs> You're really more wrong. therapy for me. Dev gets to take home more than $50,000 and the championship trophy. Henry Hoke's new novel follows the perspective of L.A.'s beloved Puma, who was known as P-22. That story coming up on Weekend Edition Saturday. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, new research out of MIT shows that AI, like ChatGPT, could benefit employees in some workplaces in surprising ways. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The recent causes of inflation may be easing, the pandemic, supply chain bottlenecks, but prices don't seem to be going down. What firms do is pursue profits, but in these kind of emergencies, they have opportunities to pursue profits in ways in which they do not have in other kinds of times. And that is a huge problem. That's On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Get our daily newsletter, WBUR Today, in your email inbox every day. Today's issue looks at the big pickleball tournament coming to Fenway Park, plus the tea delays that'll slow you down this weekend. Sign up at WBUR.org slash newsletters. A high near 88 today. Clouds move in throughout the morning and early afternoon. We may see showers and possibly a thunderstorm in late afternoon and evening. Tonight it falls to a low around 52. Tomorrow mostly cloudy and a high only around 58 with a good chance of showers. Sunday, partly sunny, a high near 60, and another chance of showers. It's 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. From heated debates about book bans to new laws restricting how teachers can talk about race and gender identity in class, America is deeply divided, and those fissures are ripping through our public schools. Now, a new NPR Ipsos poll sheds some light and brings some refreshing nuance to those debates. NPR education correspondent Corey Turner joins us now. Corey, given all the stories these days about fights over what should or what should not be happening in our schools, how are parents really feeling right now? Yeah, well, they tell us in our poll that they overwhelmingly trust their child's teachers, A, to make decisions about classroom curriculum. But here's the trick. Many also say they are worried about what their child is being taught or may be taught. Democrats, not so much, but nearly half of independents are worried. And for Republican parents, it goes up to 65%. So I asked Mallory Newell, she's a vice president at Ipsos, how does she make sense of this tension between parents saying they trust teachers while also saying that they are worried about what their children may be learning? I think we're seeing the effect of partisan cues from political leaders that have sent signals for these parents to be worried about what's going on in the classroom. And it's easy to get them to doubt. All right. So what about putting that doubt into action? I mean, in, in general, are, are Republicans saying they support efforts like we've seen in Florida to restrict how teachers can talk about things such as uh, race, sexuality and, and gender identity? The short answer is not broadly, though it does depend some on who is doing that restricting. So let me explain. The, the poll reveals a very real mistrust of federal and state level officials getting involved in classrooms. Just 20% of all respondents and only 38% of Republicans support state lawmakers doing the kinds of teacher restrictions we've seen in Florida. Here's Amanda Hickerson. She's a Republican mother of two in Virginia who responded to our poll. I wouldn't go to my mechanic and tell him how to fix my car. I don't know how to fix my car. That's why I send it to the mechanic. So why are we doing this to our teachers? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I should say, we also asked if folks would feel better about teacher restrictions if they come from the local school board instead of state officials. Democrats and independents were still broadly opposed, but support among Republicans does go up with nearly half in support. All right. Now, what about what's among the most controversial topics, uh, book bans, pulling books from school libraries? Yeah, so there's even less support among Democrats and independents for book banning. Among Republicans, support tops out at 41 percent, but nearly 46 percent are clearly opposed. I spoke with one mother in Texas who identifies as a Christian conservative. She told me she supports removing books that depict sexual acts. But when I asked about banning books because of their handling of, say, race or politics, which we have also seen, she told me those don't offend me at all because that opens up a child's mind. I also spoke with several Republican respondents who said, look, this country was founded on liberty and book banning just doesn't feel American. 
And it also feels kind of pointless, they told me, when kids can find much worse, much faster on the Internet. That's NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Corey, thanks. You're welcome, eh? Time now for StoryCorps. Today, a love story from Logan, Utah. Julianne Larson had been living with schizophrenia since her 20s. Mar Fenix-Nauta was managing her own bipolar disorder and PTSD. Both lived in Logan but had never met, until one night when Julianne went to a support group for people living with mental illness and saw Mar. I noticed how you carried yourself, your beautiful, gorgeous eyes. I just really wanted you to be my friend. We were friends for a couple years. Then there was that kiss. I don't remember anything except just completely melting into you. I knew at that moment that I was hooked. (laughs) Oh, me too. I was a goner. And this July, we'll have been together for 13 years. Lucky 13, right? Lucky 13. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I have hallucinations. And when I met you... I was really worried about sharing that with you. I did not think any big thing of it at all. (laughs) It was just another piece of information about you, like your favorite color or your favorite restaurant or something. I knew you, and you were just sweet as the day is long. Well, I can't tell you how invaluable it is to have another brain in on my own brain because (laughs) it's a bad neighborhood, right? (laughs) When you go in there alone and you're always willing to come along. If I have a question like, hey, did you hear that? You'll say, nope, nope, I did not. (laughs) And then in 2014, I went and got cancer on you. I told you I was really worried and you thought I was worried that you were going to lose your hair because you had this beautiful (laughs) long hair at the time. Not that it's not cute now. I said, I don't care if you go bald. I'm worried you're going to die. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You were so compassionate and you took care of me. Well, I get ups and downs and the ups are really up and the downs are really down. But when things flare up, You support me by telling me you love me and making me laugh. And when I'm feeling high or low, you help straighten me out. So that's what we do because we love each other. Right. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. That was Julianne Larson and Mar Fenix-Nauta at StoryCorps in Logan, Utah. They still attend the same support group where they met 15 years ago. Their interview is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru and its retailers, partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at Subaru.com care. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com.
This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition. One Massachusetts writer is applauding the inclusion in Disney's new version of The Little Mermaid, but she also wants more of it. It's 829. Follow the news all day with WBUR. You can pause and rewind live radio with the WBUR mobile app. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Officials in Ukraine are reporting more Russian airstrikes today targeting Kyiv. In Moldova yesterday, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky told European leaders the best security guarantee for his country would be membership in NATO and the European Union. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Helsinki today where the focus has been on Russia's war in Ukraine. Finland is the newest member of NATO. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports. Speaking at City Hall in the Finnish capital, Helsinki, Secretary of State Antony Blinken compared Russian President Vladimir Putin to the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin and the current moment in Europe to 1939. He said Russia's invasion of Ukraine has hurt everyone, including Russia itself. Putin's war of aggression against Ukraine has been a strategic failure, greatly diminishing Russia's power, its interests and its influence for years to come. With military support for Ukraine, Blinken said the U.S. is committed to finding a just and lasting peace that will address accountability for the war, reconstruction and reconciliation. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. Congress has given final approval to legislation that raises the debt ceiling and prevents a default. The bill cleared the Senate last night on a vote of 63 to 36, a day after the House approved it. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Leaders with the T are asking for patience when it comes to noticeable improvements to the transit system. They said there are small changes being made constantly, but that it could take a year before riders really notice a difference. The new MBTA general manager, Phil Ang, says he plans to reach out to engineering firms and contractors to find innovative ways to improve the system. Moving forward, being on time on budget is going to be important to me, particularly as I continue to ask for more dollars. If I'm spending the money in a most efficient, cost-effective manner that's giving meaningful, measurable projects, I think that's one of the best ways to say, you know, the T is a good investment. Ang also says he wants to visit as many communities served by the T as possible so he can get more ideas for improvements. An audit has found that Massachusetts used $2.5 billion in federal funds to pay unemployment benefits during the pandemic. But those benefits should have been paid using state money. The state has not said how the mistake was made. Governor Healy's office tells the Boston Globe it wants to find a solution with the smallest impact possible. The U.S. Labor Department says it's working with the state to solve the issue. 
There are new construction safety rules in Boston. Mayor Michelle Wu signed them into law yesterday. They require construction and demolition companies to train workers and file detailed safety plans. The rules come as construction fatalities in the city are up in the last few years. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Red Sox beat the Cincinnati Reds 8-2 last night at Fenway Park. Tonight, the Sox will play the Tampa Bay Rays. Clouds rule in throughout this morning and this afternoon. There's a chance of showers and a thunderstorm. High temperatures will be in the upper 80s. Tonight, cloudy with more showers possible and lows in the low 50s. Saturday, temperatures won't rise past 60. And there's another good chance of rain. About the same on Sunday, around 60 and the chance of showers. It's 74 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm May Martinez in Culver City, California. The defense chiefs from the U.S. and China are headlining an international defense summit this weekend, but they apparently won't be talking to each other. That's right. They're both attending the Asia-focused Shangri-La Dialogue that kicks off today in Singapore. But according to the U.S., China has already rejected an invitation to meet there. We're joined now by NPR's Emily Fang, who is in Singapore covering the dialogue. Emily, just a week ago on this show, we were talking about what President Biden described as an expected thaw in relations. Uh, Why is the freezer door still closed? Well, this thaw is not straightforward, and both China and the U.S. want it to happen on their terms. There was some hope, which is, I think, what you're pointing to between the two countries this uh, last month when they had a bunch of meetings. Beijing finally sent its ambassador to D.C. There were top commerce officials who talked trade in Washington. There was a Vienna meeting between the National Security Advisor and China's top diplomat. So the two countries were talking again, and things were looking up. But when the U.S. proposed at this defense meeting here at the Shangri-La to meet between the two defense chiefs, Beijing said no. And the primary reason for that rejection was in 2018, the U.S. sanctioned the China defense chief, the current China defense chief, for buying Russian weapons. And so China has understandably been upset about this. They would like to see those sanctions lifted first before they have any meetings with U.S. officials. And why is it important that the defense chiefs in particular talk? It's important because you need communication between two of the most powerful militaries in the world. And U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke to this earlier this week when he was in Tokyo, where he was visiting before he heads to the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore today. You heard me talk a number of times about the importance of countries with significant capabilities uh, being able to talk to each other so you can manage crises and prevent uh, things from spiraling out of control unnecessarily. He's referring here specifically to another incident that was just publicized this week in the South China Sea, where the U.S. accuses a Chinese fighter jet of buzzing a U.S. surveillance plane. 
And Austin has reason to be worried because more than two decades ago, a Chinese plane did actually collide with a U.S. surveillance plane in the South China Sea. In that crash, the Chinese pilot died. The U.S. pilot had to crash land in China. The American crew was held for 10 days before they could go back home. And this all happened when relations between the U.S. and China were better than they are now. So just imagine if something similar happened when the two sides are not talking. On trade and diplomacy, there are signs that this bilateral dialogue is mending, but in terms of military competition, the tension is escalating. The communication channels between the two countries on this issue have remained cut basically ever since former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last summer and China got very upset. Now, U.S.-China relations may be the headline for this thing, but uh, this dialogue has a lot more to it. Right. There are more than one-fourth of delegates who are from Southeast Asian countries, so this gathering is not just all about the U.S. and China, though, to be fair, that is a lot of what Southeast Asian countries are talking about. They're trying to figure out how to fit themselves in between the broad contours of the superpower competition, and this includes the issue of Taiwan, which China claims. And even though I'm in Singapore, you know, we're a hemisphere away from Europe, the war in Ukraine is on the agenda here. There are European politicians here, and so far, Southeast Asia has remained pretty quiet on the issue, so that's going to be in talks this weekend as well. NPR's Emily Fang in Singapore. Emily, good to talk. Thanks, A. There's a history of new technologies benefiting highly paid, college-educated professionals while putting others out of work. Will the same thing happen as generative AI like ChatGPT enters the workplace? Adrian Ma and Waylon Wong from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, says new research offers some reasons for optimism. Now, there's no shortage of hot takes on how generative AI could affect the economy. But MIT economist Danielle Lee is not really a hot takes person. I get stressed out when there's sort of like too much hype around tech. Danielle wanted to study the effects of generative AI in the context of someone's actual job. So she and her colleagues, Lindsay Raymond and Eric Brynjolfsson, found a company that had begun experimenting with using AI in its customer contact centers. You know, the places you call or message when you can't log into your account or you keep getting an error message. The company created this virtual AI assistant, which they trained up using thousands of examples of successful customer interactions. And then the customer support employees, when they were chatting with customers, they had this AI assistant on a screen in front of them, and it would instantaneously serve up suggested responses or solutions to the customer's problems. Danielle and her fellow researchers got six months of data from this company, thousands of customer interactions. And what they learned is, well, first, that working in customer support is not easy. If you look, you see, you know, like lots of yelling, people writing in all caps. Despite the unpleasant customers, it turns out with an AI assistant, it's a little bit better. One of their main findings was that workers were more productive. They measured this by looking at the number of problems workers were able to resolve in an hour and found that productivity increased 14 percent. They also found that customer satisfaction increased and employee turnover decreased, which suggests that the workers were more satisfied with their jobs. So in this case, Danielle says that the AI seemed to make a positive difference, not just for the customer or the company's bottom line, but also for the employee. A lot of what customer service is is about managing people's feelings because people come, they're tired or whatever. And so in some sense, there's kind of this sort of human soft skills component that these technologies are able to capture in a way that prior technologies couldn't. The researchers did expect generative AI to have some benefits for the employees, but what was really interesting to them was 
who benefited the most. Turns out the improvements in productivity and customer satisfaction were mostly coming from relatively inexperienced workers, people who had been in the job for less than a couple months. Danielle's co-author, Lindsay Raymond, says this makes sense when you think about it. Because the AI is learning from these human-generated training examples about like what makes a good interaction, the really experienced and really good workers are already doing that, while the newest workers have the most to gain from access to those AI recommendations. Danielle and Lindsay say just maybe what we're seeing here is the potential for generative AI to shift the old narrative, decades where technological advances have mainly benefited the most elite workers. And with these new AI tools, maybe workers who didn't have a ton of experience or elite education can get a leg up this time. Waylon Wong. Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the spiraling economic crisis in Argentina, which now has the third highest inflation in the world. Upper 80s today with a chance of showers and a thunderstorm this afternoon. Low 50s tonight with more rain possible. Tomorrow only in the 50s and a good chance of more showers. Around 60 on Sunday with rain likely. It's 75 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics, bionovascientific.com, where concept becomes cure. And Museum of Science, visit mazes and brain games and challenge the relationship between the mind and the eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at mos.org. Two Alzheimer's drugs made by Cambridge-based Biogen could be covered by Medicare if they get FDA approval. The group responsible for Medicare coverage says it would start on the same day approval is granted. Both drugs are currently only covered if they're part of a random clinical trial. Construction is set to start soon on remaking the old Cape Town Plaza in Hyannis. Developers will change its name to The Landing at Hyannis. It'll include stores, restaurants, and a Whole Foods. It's unclear when construction will wrap up on the site. There's a new luxury hotel open in Brookline. Sonder formally opened the Arcadian Hotel yesterday on Beacon Street. It has more than 250 rooms and is the company's largest hotel. Sonder runs five other hotels in the greater Boston area. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org and Perkins School for the Blind, global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at perkins.org slash changing lives. 
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Disney's new live-action remake of its animated classic, The Little Mermaid, is getting mixed reviews. When the original movie came out in 1989, WBUR commentator Teresa O'Kogan was six years old. It was such a mainstay in her family's weekly blockbuster haul that her mom eventually bought a copy and Teresa practically wore out the VHS tape. She went to see the new adaptation last weekend and found herself wanting more. Ariel and her long red hair take up a lot of space in my childhood memories. On summer trips to the pool, I wore a swim cap to cover my jerry curl or braids to protect my natural hair. I would dive in, squeeze my legs together like a fin, and then surge out of the water, flicking my head back and doing my darndest to recreate the iconic rock scene at the end of Part of Your World. You know the song. Ready to know what the people know. Ask them my questions and get some answers. What's a fire and why does it, what's the word? I was well into my adulthood by the time the phrase representation matters began catching on. So when I walked into the theater to see Disney's new remake of The Little Mermaid, I knew what I was supposed to be feeling. Because seeing a black Ariel should feel reaffirming, right? Indeed, I happily chomped away on my popcorn and bunch of crunch as Ariel swam around her underwater treasure trove pondering forks. My friend and I exchanged uggs at David Diggs' decision to stay true to Sebastian's pseudo-Caribbean accent. Okay, okay, listen to me. The human world is a mess. But by the time Under the Sea played, I was dancing in my seat and happily sipping my cocktail. This seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. You dream about going up... But as I drove home from the theater that night... I began to feel a creeping sense of longing. It could have been fresh heartbreak. I'd just been dumped the week before. Or maybe it's that I am, for only the second time ever, allowing myself to date non-cis men. Maybe if I'd seen more queer characters in the media I'd consumed as a child, I would have figured myself out sooner. Or maybe it wasn't any of those things. It took me a few days to realize that what I wanted was something more than a remake of The Little Mermaid. I wanted a full-scale re-envisioning. I'm curious about a world where Ursula is an asexual femme struggling to embrace body positivity who goes to weekly brunch with her gay besties. Or tell me about Ariel's big sister, the one who's 40 years old and just bought a coral reef condo on her own and endlessly swipes the dating apps hoping to find the mer person of her dreams. I'm glad that a new generation of kids will imagine Halle Bailey's locks and beautiful brown biceps when they squeeze their eyes tight and practice their mermaid dives this summer. But I refuse to believe I'm alone in wishing Disney would also take the risk of telling a different version of this classic story. I want to see how all the other people and people in Ariel's world live. I want to see them walk see them run. I want to hear their stories. Ultimately, the lingering letdown I experienced is because I'm a lot like Ariel. I want the same thing she did. 
which is to say that I just always want more. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. Teresa Okokin is a writer and writing instructor. You can read her essay and many more at WBUR.org. Dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on efforts by the United Nations to crack down on drug traffickers and the political scandal involving a high profile soccer referee ahead of one of Europe's biggest tournaments. It's 8 49. You know that phrase, strength in numbers? Well, that's how WBUR really works. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The strength of our journalism comes from combining contributions from tens of thousands of listeners every year. This coming Monday through Thursday, WBUR will have a brief but important fundraiser. The goal? 700 listeners becoming monthly contributors. Be one of them. Help us off to a strong start by giving right now. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. President Biden is set to sign the debt ceiling compromise bill, ending weeks of negotiations and the threat of default. The Labor Department says employers added nearly 340,000 jobs last month, far above expectations. And in Massachusetts, MBTA leaders say it could be a year before riders notice significant improvements on the T. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. Go EndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. Clouds move in throughout the morning and winds will pick up, bringing showers and a thunderstorm this afternoon. It'll be in the upper 80s. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. A super hot labor market with some asterisks. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. 339,000 new jobs were added to the economy in May. Surveys showed economists were expecting a little more than half of that amount. Here to tell us more is economist Julia Coronado, professor at the University of Texas, Austin, and the founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. Hi, Julia. Hello. Good morning. So on the one hand, uh, 339,000 jobs, that is a lot. Uh, on the other hand, 440,000 more unemployment, unemployed people in the economy, and the unemployment rate went up to 3.7%. So how do we make sense of that? Well, yeah, that's right. We got very conflicting signals from this report. The report comes from two separate surveys, and they're just telling us different things. In the survey that feeds the unemployment rate, 
uh, it includes self-employed people. And what we saw was a big drop in self-employment uh, and therefore a rise in unemployment. And so um, the payroll survey just doesn't capture that uh, source of weakness. So overall, it's a mixed report, um, but we do see some signs of softening. Wage growth is also softening. Uh, now, people at the Federal Reserve had been saying we should pause on raising interest rates in the economy. Do you think they're still going to do that? Yes, I think this is still a report that leads them to sort of take a wait-and-see approach. It doesn't take additional rate hikes off the table completely, but at least for now, let's gather a little more information, especially when the signals are so mixed. Julia Cornado with Macro Policy Perspectives in the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you so much. My pleasure. The Supreme Court has ruled that a concrete company in Washington can sue a labor union for a strike that damaged some of the company's product. The dispute started back in 2017 when cement truck drivers walked off the job in protest. Their trucks, at that point fully loaded with wet concrete, had to be emptied and all the concrete was lost. The company wanted to sue. State court dismissed the suit, saying it was at odds with labor law. The suit can now go forward. The decision was 8 to 1. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the 3 to 6 tenths percent range, with the Dow future up 195 points. Ten-year Treasury yield popped up on that jobs report. It's at 3.649%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to automate business processes. It's a smarter way to innovate. More at UiPath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Forever Ago. It's a history show for the whole family. The podcast makes learning about the past fun while teaching listeners to think critically about history. If you thought we have been on a wild ride with inflation the past couple of years, that is nothing compared to what Argentina has been dealing with. Prices have more than doubled in a year. Its central bank, just like our Fed, has had to raise interest rates to fight that inflation. And Argentinian interest rates are now at nearly 100%. This is having big consequences for people just trying to live their lives and get by. The BBC's Leanna Byrne joins us now to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning. So Argentina is no stranger to inflation, but this seems really bad. What exactly is going on there? Yeah, it is really bad. I mean, it's got a troubled economic history. In the 80s, it had hyperinflation. 20 years ago, the country defaulted on its debt. The thing is, it's still South America's second largest economy. It's got a huge agricultural sector, huge tourism sector, and lots of natural resources. But despite all of that, it almost has no access to international capital because it's got a bad rep. And right now, it's really dependent on a multi-billion dollar international monetary fund bailout, which comes with conditions to cut spending. Well, what is it like to live through something like this for regular people? It's pretty tough for regular people there. Official figures say that 40% are living in poverty. A particular pressure point is food. Prices are up by 41% since January this year. So let's hear from Gabriel now. He owns his apartment and he considers himself middle class, but he's cutting back on what he eats. Sometimes I say I'm going to probably have a good meal at lunchtime and then some biscuits before I go to bed rather than having lunch and proper dinner. And then uh, everything is going up. So I do get quite worried because 
that means I will have to sell my apartment and go somewhere else. But the problem is at the moment, nobody's got money to buy an apartment. That does sound very difficult. What ultimately is behind Argentina's current economic problems? I mean, it's kind of a complex picture, but to break it down, inflation has been particularly high since the economic crisis five years ago. The peso lost value, and since the Fed is raising interest rates, it's made its dollar debts and commodities a lot more expensive. Also, a string of the worst droughts for years have hit crop yields, and that means the revenues government gets from taxing grain exports are down. The government has actually been printing money. Here's someone with far more qualifications on this subject, economist Freddie Thompson. Governments that systematically spend more than the collecting taxes have to find ways how to pay for that difference. And that's either borrowing until the debt is unpayable and then the country defaults, or it's printing pesos until the peso becomes worthless, which is what we're seeing today. So, yeah, as we can hear, Argentina is really stuck between kind of an economic rock and a hard place on this one. All right. The BBC's Leanna Byrne. Thank you so much. Thank you. This week, the Marketplace Morning Report team premiered Finding Your Place, a special series on homelessness. Our team took a look at new thinking around homelessness, the push to criminalize it, and spoke to people trying to hold down a job while looking for permanent housing. And there's more. Here's a bit of that reporting. On any given night in the United States, more than 580,000 people are homeless. I was able to start thinking about what I need to do without worrying about what's around me or who's going to hurt me. When housing is scarce, it's not available and it's very expensive, if you're vulnerable in any way, you're far more likely to experience homelessness. All of the stories related to finding your place are on our website, marketplace.org. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang. Our engineers are Brian Allison and Jake Cherry. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Thanks for listening to Morning Edition this week on WBUR. Today, upper 80s with rain this afternoon, low 50s tonight, tomorrow 50s, and more showers likely, around 60 and rainy on Sunday. Right now, it's 77 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.